0: would like to follow along, we'll be back in the book of Galatians. After eight months, we return and uh, causes special nervousness how to begin and jump back in this book in the middle, and I realized I couldn't. We left off in the early part of chapter 3, and what I hope to do today, by God's help, is to do a little review of what the book of Galatians is about. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 16, what I believe is a central theme of the book, and then we'll look at some, hopefully, some things that will help us reorient our minds, our hearts, to the message that the Holy Spirit gave to Paul in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Let us pray. Our Father, we often pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would open our heart. Father, I, I pray that you would open our eyes that we truly see, that you would open our ears that we would truly hear, that you would open our hearts that we would truly believe, that we would be As that man in the New Testament is illustrated, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Father, we tend to be practical atheists. We tend to be Pharisees. We tend to look at the things that we have done and forget that it is all of you. Father, direct our hearts, direct our eyes, direct our minds that we might see you and that we might believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we look at Galatians, we might be tempted to follow the lead of some of the older commentators in describing Galatians. I have not read but few excerpts from the ancient historian Jerome, but I have been told that he contended that Galatians was all about circumcision. There are others who take a cue from chapter 2 and tell us that Galatians is all about dietary laws of the Jews and how the Gentiles were tripped up by those and that we need to learn what table fellowship is all about. Technically, many people divide Paul's letter simply into three sections, each two chapters, Chapters 1 and 2, Paul's defense of his ministry and of his authority. Chapters 3 and 4, the defense of the doctrine of grace in Christ. And chapters 5 and 6, his practical guide to living and liberty. But if you were to read the letter through, as was meant to be when the letter was written by Paul and sent to the churches plural in the region of which we are not sure north or south but it was a region called Galatia that these churches were to read the letter in its entirety and understand his message in its entirety to be sure Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty and in the first Five verses of chapter 1, specifically we would point to verse 3, where he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That it is more than just a salutation. More than just where we say, hi, how are you doing? Or, as they say here in South Carolina, hey. It is more than that. It is a greeting, grace to you and peace. From God our Father. But as we read a little bit further, particularly down to verse 6, we realize that the people in the churches in the region of Galatia had lost the meaning of those words grace to you and peace. It was as if something else was at the heart of their salvation. That they had somehow come to believe that something must be added in order for them to truly have grace and peace. But again, to listen to the heart of the Apostle as he's writing this, the emotions, the passion... Perhaps we could even say the frenzy with it, which it, this letter was written. There, to be sure, this letter is no sparkling masterpiece of literature. Perhaps you remember the comment from the commentator J.B. Lightfoot. When he speaks of a section in chapter 3, he calls it, quote, a shipwreck of grammar. It is not meant to be that. It is the heart of the apostle coming through. For example, in verse chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There, There is an intensity there. People don't speak like that, do they? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I in a society where we worship the I. Or the heart of the apostle, as he writes in chapter 4, verse 19, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Is that not an intensity, moms? That they would go through labor again if it would help Christ be formed in them? And then we come to where we really see that the intensity, I think, of the apostle, it's as if he's been writing this. And I I believe firmly that that Paul, unlike other letters where he dictated them to a scribe who wrote them down, that he wrote this letter in his own hand. He comes to chapter 6 and verse 11, and, and he says... See, it's as if he surprised himself as he's writing in the parchment. He's coming to the end and to the conclusion of his letter and he realizes that he started in this font, if you will. And as he's gone along, the letters have gotten larger and larger as his emotion and his passion and his love for the people and the message that he's giving to them has caught fire in his heart and hopes it catches fire in theirs. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I, I can't look at Galatians academically anymore. And I think we do ourselves disservice and disservice to the scriptures if we try to take it in such a technical, clinical manner, we need to understand when he says in verse 6 of chapter 1. After he says, grace to you and peace from God, and then he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel It's as if something is telling you that your salvation in Christ is not enough, that you must add something to it in order to have this grace and peace. But Paul, when he says in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father, he means grace to you. And if there were no grace to you, there cannot be and peace from God our father it is not what they have done it is what god has done grace to you comes first or as aw tozer once said god is always previous god comes first god invented this he starts this letter remember with the word not It's not from man. It's not the invention of man. It's from God. We we will lose Galatians. We will lose the message. We will lose the passion, the fire, and the fury from Paul. If we don't understand that he starts with that, not, it's not me. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's God's grace to you and peace from God, our father. It is the message of Christian liberty, but it is founded on grace to you. And Paul says, that's the gospel. You, you have missed that foundational point. There, there is no other gospel. And he kind of has that, um, you know, that Judicial way of saying things somehow, sometimes. In the first century, this is what they would say, is that kind of thing. There is no other gospel. And I don't mean there is any other gospel. There is no other gospel. But somebody has brought to you what they purport to be a gospel. But the gospel was not designed from man. It did not come from man, but came from God. Or to say it another way, the gospel was not designed to please man. The gospel was designed to please God. And because it was designed by God to please himself, it must come by his revelation to us. It requires revelation, and it required that the one who would preach it would be divinely authoritative. And I believe that's why Paul launches into his defense of his ministry, because there are those who would say, you have no right, you're not worthy. He said, I didn't appoint myself, but the risen Christ appointed me. He chose me to preach his message. And so I don't want to make it again go away to the other side of the spectrum from too technical to too simplistic. But I think we could look at it this way, that Paul initially, from verse 6 on, says, stop. Stop. You're about to cross the road to follow a different gospel, and you don't know that you're about to be run over. You're about to be blindsided stop this is no human invention it is not by man but it is by God but I believe that in these three verses from verse three through five we do see the thread of where Paul is going next grace to you and peace from God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ but what is it founded on? What is that message of the gospel that means the most to Paul? That, that, that is the anchor here of, of his Christianity is found in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins. Who gave himself. The gospel proclamation centers on Christ and him crucified. It's as if Paul at first says, stop, you're about to be bulldozed. And then he says, look, look at the cross of Christ. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. His death is enough. The gospel is sufficient for your salvation. You do not need to add to it. In fact, you cannot add to it without tarnishing the work of Christ on the cross. And as we go on through, particularly again in chapters 3 and 4, the explanation and proclamation of the value and the worth of Christ on the cross He comes to integrate that with our regeneration. Our regeneration integrated with the work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. It's this, again, he says, stop. And he says, look. And then he says, now walk this way. In chapter 5, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Paul doesn't leave us hanging with the academic. He doesn't leave us hanging with vague notions of what he's talking about, but in his passion he says to us, stop, you are about to follow a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. But look, look at the cross, look at the work of Christ. That is the heart of the gospel. It is what God has done for us through Christ on the cross. Now we can walk. Now you can move on. Now you can walk in that Christian liberty. And peace will be yours from our God and Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, I believe, is the crux of the argument that he brings. Can there be a different gospel? What does he mean, again, by a different gospel? Not something that is it he start again he means that it is something new and something that is different from his gospel but he also means something that is dangerous he says in verse 7 of chapter 1 it's really not another only there are some who are disturbing you. Or you could put the word confusing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He sees that they have, they're have they confused. They're, the agitators have come to them and, and they're teaching something that is confusing them because they, they recognize there are some things that sound right, but there are some things that weren't in Paul's gospel. And Paul says, no, they're trying to distort, they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. We know that false teaching is sometimes presented that way, isn't it? Presented with things that are anchored or at least have a beginning in truth, beginning in what is right, with something that we already accept, but then there ought to be something added on. And when he says some, he's referring to people. And we know that many things that we would probably refer to as cults don't really start with, they may start with some idea, but how do they take hold? How do they grow? It's a cult because People are following the personality. And we know that false teachers represent themselves as holding something more important than what you've heard before. Something different than what you've heard before. Something new. Something improved. Something beyond what you've heard before. Something better. And Paul says, no, this is a distortion of the gospel. This is a perversion of the gospel, because it's changing in reality or replacing the gospel with something else. And I believe that we could say that these agitators, those who came to the Galatians, I think presented themselves as Christians. But they were pressuring the Galatians to be circumcised and to submit themselves to the gospel or the laws of Moses in order for their Christian life to become complete. Yeah, Paul, what Paul's saying is true, but you must be circumcised and you must follow the laws of Moses in order for you to truly be a Christian. But to Paul... Law and the bondage to the law are substituted for grace and peace. This is confusing the Galatian believers, and I think it confuses us today. Because the teaching distorts the gospel by saying, what God does for you depends on what you do for God. And that's not the gospel of Christ. It's not the gospel that Paul was preaching. We don't like it when Paul uses language like he does in verse 9 of chapter 1. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed, let him go to hell. It's not popular in our day. When you open your internet browser, you're doing your searches. If They're like mine, and maybe mine is old and decrepit. I mean, I, I still listen to the radio, and the same thing happens. At the bottom of every hour, there's a tone. Da-da-da-da-da-da, trending now. And you see in the sidebar, right, all these things, but people are... Searching for what is trending, what is popular, what are people thinking and talking about? Well, I am pretty certain that hell, God's judgment, eternal damnation are not trending on your browser right now. But if we refuse to teach these things, if we refuse to acknowledge these things, if we refuse to understand that these things are part of the gospel and the need of the gospel, then we are doing, as Paul is saying, do we seek to please men? Do we seek to please men and tickle itching ears by refusing to talk about sin? to talk about judgment, to talk about why there is a cross. But the gospel is an antithesis to religious moralism, to works religion or works gospel or social gospel or prosperity gospel. There is no syncretism. There is no synthesis. It is an antithesis only, or it wouldn't be the gospel. <laughs> if you're not living under the grace of God, you are living under the curse of God. There can't be any synthesis of those two ideas. But the gospel... The gospel that Paul presents is what Matthew Henry calls that strange method Christ took. Yes, there is a curse. There is God's judgment for those who are not in Christ. But Paul says in chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Again, it's an antithesis to everything else. There is no way for us to do that. So anything that we would try to add, any morality, any works, any attitudes, any giving ourselves, even our long lives, as Paul might say in First Corinthians thirteen, without the gospel. They are worthless. I've been reading a book by a pastor who preaches in Illinois, and he says this, The law was added to show us what perfect moral life is like, and therefore how much we need God's grace. Just how much we need God to give us grace. I think he could also say, and he does say elsewhere in his preaching, the law cannot make us holy. It cannot make us presentable to God. It cannot make us righteous. And I think that's where many of us get confused. We, we, we see these kind of law terms in the scriptures and in Galatians. Justification, for example. That how do we become justified, or what does it mean to be justified? It is a law term. It means how someone gets acquitted before a judge. But Paul makes clear through Galatians that justification is not an act of man. It is an act of God. When God justifies, we do not receive justice. A lot of us think that. I do. Oh, justification means I have received justice. I've gotten a just judgment. That is not what Paul uses, how he defines God's justice. We do not receive justice and we're not just let off from the crime. We're just not let off as, as not being guilty. In the First century, and in this context, it is that the judge declares us just. He declares us innocent and pure and righteous. And it's not the same thing as being let off, it is totally different. You are pronounced innocent. You are declared righteous. That is the justice of God, and it is from God alone. And the issue that he brings in chapter 2 is that humans have a tendency to return to self-justification by works. We want to self-justify. We want to present ourselves to God that he would accept us. We, We think that somehow our justification depends upon our sanctification. We get those confused. We, we, we think that somehow, again, that, that what we do for, for or how God looks at us, what he does for us depends on what we do for him. Remember the words of Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says in John chapter 15. We live the Christian life sometimes on a performance basis with God. And we think that we're being humble, don't we? But in reality, we're elevating our sense of our own selves. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. And what do we do by that? We tarnish the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter refused to eat with those who ate pork he was displaying this kind of an attitude. He, it is as if perhaps he was saying, my salvation really is about who I am by birth. My salvation is really about what I have achieved by keeping the law. My standing before God is what I think other people are. One commentator asked this question, and it just kind of floors me when I read it again. If the works of the law could justify, what's the point of Jesus? What's the point of Jesus Christ if works of the law can make us innocent before God? Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, and it was a big part in his thinking in the Reformation, I believe, says this, quote, I embrace only the righteousness of Christ, which we do not perform but receive, which we do not have but accept when God the Father grants it to us through Jesus Christ. Again, if works of the law could justify, what is the use of Jesus? Luther stood on this. We do not perform, but we receive it. We do not have it, but we accept it when God grants it to us through Christ. How does Paul convey these things in Galatians? Well, I believe that we would do well to follow, again, that Paul doesn't follow what's trending now, but he followed what was given to him of first importance, that Christ gave himself for our sins. This was Paul's great boast from the beginning of Galatians to the end. In verse 4, we've read that verse of chapter 1. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And in chapter 6, he says, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast of anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which the gospel is not the gospel without the cross and I, I, I've thought about this, I've meditated on this, and I don't mean any irreverence, and I don't mean it wrong, but I need to say, the resurrection validates Christ's victory over death, but by itself, the resurrection is not the gospel. If Christ lived... A sinless life, taught what he taught, and pointed people to God, and lived to the ripe old age of 92, died of quote-unquote natural causes, and then three days later rose from the dead, we would not have the gospel because we didn't have the cross. Look, Paul says, look at the cross. He gave himself for our sins. He laid down his life for our sins, for his people. It was actual saving atonement and satisfying of God's judgment upon sinners that happened at the cross. He took upon himself our punishment, our damnation for us. He bore it in his body on the cross. His body broken, his blood pouring out for us according to the will of God. It was in the plan of God, and I, my mind cannot grasp this. I can only state it and pray that God would enlighten me. It was in the plan of God from eternity, and it was in the plan of God for his glory. It was not an accident. It wouldn't be the gospel without the cross. And what is our proper response? Paul says, to whom be the glory forevermore, amen. Does it glorify God to have a Jesus plus gospel? Does it glorify God that we say, yeah, Christ died, Christ rose, Christ is in heaven, interceding for us, but I need to do some more, don't you think? Does it honor Jesus Christ to say that his taking the curse of the cross upon himself was not enough to satisfy God's judgment? In the psalm that I read this morning, Psalm 130, verse 4, the psalmist cries out, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. It is for God's glory. Again, the gospel's not for man. The gospel's for God. The gospel's for his glory, for his honor, for his people to fall down and worship. Are we awed by God and the work of Christ on the cross? Does it it make us tremble each day with fear and awe and reverence for God Almighty that Christ went to the cross? Or are we, and I believe that I put I, are we so practical atheists as to believe? Yeah, God exists, but I live as if he is not able to sanctify me, to make me holy, to make me righteous, to help me walk before him and be blameless. So what is that proper response? Well, I think we have an opportunity to have a proper response this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because it is by Christ's death that we have communion. It is by Christ's death that we can partake together, that we have fellowship Otherwise, we're just a bunch of individual selves trying to achieve our own righteousness, trying to live our own performance criteria before God, whatever we've decided that is. But it's by Christ's death that we come together in fellowship and communion. He won that for us at the cross. He paid for that, that we might have it. And together we worship and glorify God in Christ as we partake together of the Lord's Supper. I don't remember all the words of the song this morning, but that refrain that kind of came to my mind was we stop and look and we remember the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Our Father, please, please open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we might truly see and hear and believe, and that we may glorify you in our lives, that we may glorify you in our relationships, that we may glorify you in our fellowship together as the body of Christ. Build your church, Lord, and glorify yourself. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.